Hello and welcome to Carbide Content. I'm David from Contraption Collection. I am Grant from Fellowship Blades. And I'm John from Triaxis. I had no idea which order we were going to go in. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Dalen's <laughs> yeah, me too. not here right now. We'll see if he pops in. Uh, what have you been up to, Grant? I saw you got a video showing some boxes you designed, I guess. Yeah, I uh, I haven't posted to that uh, to the Instagram or anything yet because I'm hoping to get them in hand soon. Um, but I got a box manufacturer, and I decided to go with like a magnetic latch box with a foam insert, and got got some samples on the way, and they're looking pretty sweet. So pretty excited about that. Finally, having like a professional box. Um, it looked perfect to me. Um, so like, yeah, how did you find a company to do it? Well, so I've I've been doing um I just kind of keep searching like box insert company and I end up finding like U printing or you know boxes.us or whatever. And for the price that I really care about, which is like I don't want to put you know a a, per- a real percentage of the product price into a box. Yeah. But I do want to have a nice box. Um so for the price that I want, it's it's usually ending up just like a simple folding mailer box, which is fine. Um, but I really wanted to pursue something a little bit higher quality because, r- frankly, my dad bought this like twenty dollar uh, knockoff kitchen knife from you know H E B or whatever, and it came in this beautiful box, literally magnetic close foam insert. It had certs, it had specs, it had a manual for the knife, like, and it was twenty dollars. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like. I can't I can't be out here selling selling this super high quality knife in a cardboard box, you know, like it's got to be something a little bit special. So I took a route. I actually I went to Alibaba and I just posted I posted my requirements and I I created a CAD drawing for the foam insert. And I said, make the foam insert and then makes a box around the foam insert. And I want it to be magnetic closed and I just let it rip. And I got God knows how hundreds of people in my DMs. Um, yeah, that, that can be crazy. It was a little over... <laughs> What? Have you had to do that, John? I just like it was something. I don't know if it was boxes. I didn't, I didn't mean to cut in the middle here, but it was something like boxes or like cards or something. And I was like, how hard could it be? <laughs> and it was like, now I get emails like months later, like, please respond to this email. No, <laughs> I, I did do a smart move. I used one of my junker like high school emails. Because I knew oh, that it was going to... I was giving my email to all these people. I was like, I'm going to play it safe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got a hundred, like hundreds of DMs or, uh, you know, offers, whatever they call it on, on the service. And kind of just quickly sorted through and found one that, like, clearly didn't speak broken English. Like, it was, it was very fluent English. And I was like, okay, whatever your company, at least we can communicate. And that's, like, half the battle right here. Yeah. And it has been so nice. Uh, like they, they've been really, really easy to talk to. They've been really on their game. Boxes, like I, I've kind of just been like randomly responding, and then they ended up having perfect samples, like you guys saw. And then I'm getting them in the mail in a couple weeks. So How did you like it, uh, tolerance the foam? Did you give yourself like some wiggle room for uh, how how big the knife is? Yeah, I, I actually with so luckily with cutting out my own foam right now, I kind of learned a little bit about how the EVA likes to work. And we leave 20 thou um, stock to leave. So 
around the knife dimension, if you were to take a pure silhouette, if you leave 20 thou stock to leave, the knife fits in snugly and it's tight and it's yeah, good. That's, that's what I was thinking, like 20 or 30. Nice. Yeah. So, so my dimension is 20 thou smaller than the knife. And then I think I did plus and minus five thou because I just wanted to see what would happen. <laughs> so I, and I they, had, sorry. Well, they seem to be hitting, at least they seem confident that they're sending me samples that are on, on the money. So we'll see. Yeah, I've I've tried making a board game inserts out of foam, mm-hmm. and uh, that's kind of what I found. I, for some things like cards, I think like looser stuff maybe, or or where like they could have their own tolerances. Maybe it's like sixty thou you want to do. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's pretty cool. I uh, I'm trying to order some samples of like pre-made plastic hard cases from Alibaba mm-hmm. that hopefully I'll get soon. Yeah, I, I'll send you guys, uh, if you remind me, I'll send you guys the my drawing for the foam with all the dimensions and tolerances and you can at least use it as a reference if you want to make your own. Yeah, um, yeah, that'd be cool. Because I, I was also skeptical because I was like, I'm sending machinist tolerances to a foam cutting company. God knows if they're going to know Did you do it in means. inch or metric? I did it in metric. I believe just because I didn't want like, to risk it. Safe if you chose that was nice of you. <laughs> yeah. I'd, well, I, I was going to be that American and be like inches and just make sure it's like bold font inches at the bottom of the page. Uh, yeah. And then I was like, you know what? It's probably for the best. I'll do it in metric and let them have fun with it. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a nice thing coming in. Otherwise uh, I set up automatic serial number engraving for the blades. So Haas has a, its own Dalen and I had a bet and I, I kind of cheated <laughs> by using Haas's built-in macro. Um but we were gonna we I we made a bet so that we could keep each other accountable to make automatic serial number macros for our blades because we're both manually updating the programs every night when we Same. run blades. Yep. Um yeah so I I and I tried this like a year ago. I tried to just code it in by hand on the mill. And I, I never got it to work. I kept getting errors and the errors didn't really make a lot of sense. So I tried to do it a different way. Is I wrote the macro in Fusion as a manual in C in the middle of my program. And then I posted it. And I, I guess for all the things that I finally figured out, the syntax of the macro that, that Haas likes to use, I finally got it working. And it, it's been a breeze. So John, this is definitely a Haas specific thing, but I'll send you my code. I'm here to steal your hard work. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's it's honestly not that hard. It's just like wrapping your head around the syntax and making sure that everything is in its own place. And I think the big thing is the macro doesn't like, the, which I didn't realize the first time I tried it, the macro doesn't turn on spindle and set RPM. You have to turn on spindle and set RPM before you run the macro. Gotcha. And so I was, I think the first time I was trying to do it, I was trying to turn on spindle and set RPM within the macro, like the same line. Cause I was like, I don't know how else to do this. Yeah. Um, but I basically set it behind an engraving tool path and then let, let it keep running the macro and it just worked perfectly. Now um, is it, is that first it's serial number only, or are you trying to do dates too? Cause I want to, I want to do dates, which I feel like is an extra layer of complexity. It it is actually not an extra layer of complexity. It's all so I am doing serial numbers only. However, I think literally if you just use if you just like add in a second level of parentheses, you can just plug in the date and stuff like that. 
Gotcha. Uh, but it's all within the same. Well, and it would like take the date from your computer or like where would it from get the, the machine? From? Yeah, because I'm sure the it's a variable. It's probably in the the macro variable mm-hmm. chart somewhere. Yeah, there's a macro variable for date and time and other things. And I'll send you. The, uh, Haas had a tip of the day that I was getting all this from. And um, yeah, it's literally the same exact macro. You just tweak it very slightly to add in whatever you want. Um, like the serial number is just P1 parentheses uh, number pound sign, pound sign, pound sign. And that's how it grabs the three serial number. And that's what it's inserting. So I'm Got sure it. for a date, it's just a, you know, some other format to tell it that it needs to drop the date in. Gotcha. But, now, are there like fail cases for it? Like, what happens when you go over three a three digit thing? Is it just going to go back to like zero zero zero? Uh, I don't know. I didn't try. It. I I figured by the time I get there, I'll need to revise it anyway. But gotcha. you can you can make the serial number as long as you want. So you can make it a four digit serial number, and oh, it okay. will write four digits. It's just literally adding a second pound or a third, a fourth, sorry, pound sign in that parentheses, and it should just work. Nice, because it's like it's just that, and then because the D10 pressing and the grinding thing works now, so it's like if you can combine those two, then the handles mm. are automatic. Because I don't do, like engrave the blades with anything except the whatever steel it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you sh- oh, yeah. with a little bit of tweaking. The big thing um, that trumped stumped me the first time I did it, but then I didn't know this was a thing until this week. Mm. The measure tool in the Fusion workspace. You can measure it from your work coordinate system as opposed to measuring it from the fusion origin, like the model origin. That's a pretty new thing. That's probably why you didn't see it. Okay. I, I didn't know if it was new or if I was just like, it, it literally shocked me because I was like, man, I, the first time I did it, I measured it. I measured my work coordinate from the fusion origin and then measured my other point from the fusion origin and then mathed it out to get the distance from the work coordinate. Yeah. The anyway. way I. <laughs> Yeah, I can definitely see how that's like, man, why is there not an easy way to do this? The way I used to do it was like I would look at a toolpath and then look at the the stats page and it mm-hmm. gives you the X, Y, Z coordinate for like from the WCS. And that's how I would do it. I'd like put a contour somewhere that was where I wanted it, whatever it was to be. Oh, and yeah. Okay. Those coordinates. But it was like that's stupid, too, compared to just being able to measure it. Like a Yeah. Start. Yeah. No, I and it, that makes total sense. But it, again, with a, literally a click of a drop down, you can get the exact point that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Fusion's been easy. like, there's a lot of been in the last two years, a lot of small little enhancements like that. They're like, was that just so there? Nice. Or, yeah, some of them are really, really slick. I, I wish, I wish I had, I don't know. I, I wish I was able to see their patch notes and their whatever the newsletter, wherever that information is, I want to read it. And I figure, I feel like I'm, always behind the wind whenever an update comes out. I'm like, where the hell? I, try to says, up- I thought when it says Fusion's been updated, you can like click the little update thing and then it says like see update or whatever and it takes you to a web page that uh, should have the patch notes. Yeah, I did that. And then they like post a video eventually on, on Fusion's YouTube account. With yeah, if it's like a bigger changes. update, they, they do that. I don't think they always have a video though. Yeah, I, I try to keep up with it, but I I guess I'm missing things because like I didn't I didn't know this thing was in there, the the work coordinate measurement, and God knows when that happened. Yeah, honestly, some of that stuff doesn't make it even in like the insider notes. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, some- I should try to keep. I used to keep up with it a lot, but uh, I haven't. And like when I did, 
like, you know, it would often be like, wow, I can't believe they added that. Uh, but then it feels like a lot lately it's like, oh, we added stuff to the electronics environment or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's like, I don't care about okay. that. So I, I kind of stopped paying attention to it. Yeah, yeah. that's like it's Saunders was talking about on their podcast about like updating the WCS with a known, another known like machine feature. And mm-hmm. he's like, Did you know, this is a thing. And I was like, oh man, I've been, I've been using that for two years. I, I can't believe other cam systems don't have it. So it's like, see, see that blew my mind because I, I was thinking about doing that a while ago. Then I was like, I don't know how you would, I, I stopped the process because I was like, I don't even know how you would tell the machine to upgrade, update this feature by an incremental value to your work coordinate when you're not measuring the work coordinate. Yeah. Wait, is this the same thing or something different? This is, um, so i try to explain it like really quick. If you have a, like, let's say you have G54 as the center of your, your freshly machined block. Right. And, uh, you like, you want to flip it over or something and there's a board in the center of it and you put it in the center of your vice, like, and your new work coordinate system is going to G- be G55. Uh-huh. But like G55 is the left corner of your vice. You can actually probe that bore and it'll update the corner of the vice based on where that bore is. And it'll just incrementally update it, like how far left or right that bore is. It doesn't set the work coordinate system to the bore. It just updates the cornered work coordinate system like a mm-hmm. certain distance. Oh, based. so you could have like... You're saying you could have it probe a bore in G54 and it changes what G55 is, which is somewhere else? You can also do that, but that's with an override and it's a little more complicated and it's like really impossible to explain because it gets kind of complicated. So what what would you, what's the purpose of, I I think I'm misunderstanding it then. So what's like, what's something you would do with this? All right. So on the tombstone for like the blades. Like, let's say I have, like, uh, G150P1 is, like, the bore I want to I wanna probe with the output from Fusion, right? Just probe WCS. Mm-hmm. So, originally, like, that work coordinate system doesn't move. It stays in that, in that spot. But let's say, like, I don't know, you, the plate shifted for some reason, like, a foul left or right, or there was some sort of weird thermal growth where your machine moved a lot. Well, obviously, that work coordinate system doesn't change. It's just based off, like, your original machine 00. Right. You, when you post, like, update WCS from Fusion and you click that bore in CAM, the probe is going to come over. It's going to use the original WCS, and it's going to go... It's, that's what's driving it. It's going to probe mm-hmm. that bore because you're close enough to the original yeah. like, physical location. It's going to go, okay, this bore... This bore that I just probed is two thou to the left compared to what, like the original WCS. So I'm going to update the WCS two thou to the left. Okay. Okay. So, uh, but it's the original. It's not a different work coordinate. Correct. No, it's, it's always it's the, the same. same. It, it's literally just updating it and it's shifting it little bits. Yeah. Uh, you know, for if stuff it's moves, just like you would do manually on purpose. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But the cool thing is you can make it an automated thing. Like, okay. You know, um, but yeah, you can also, what you were saying before, drive the, that probing operation from another WCS. And like, I do that for a couple things, but it's not a workflow I would try to adopt like for everything. Yeah. It's, it can be a little 
dangerous too. Doing yeah, I don't like think I. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it does work really well. The way Fusion explains it is super confusing, and you physically have to do it a couple times to be like, okay, this is what's happening. But it does work good, so it's it's pretty neat stuff actually. I I don't I don't know if it's necessary, but I probe uh the pin on my Pearson palette and change my main work coordinate system every day. Because uh, oh. I feel like I don't trust the limit switches of of the Tormach, and so it'll shift a few tenths, and I'll just check it every day. Because occasionally it'll be off by like a thou, and it's like, okay, is the probe slightly off, or is there like chips near the limit switch, or like what could it be? And like, you know, if it's if it's under a thou, I'll just like update it and assume that even if I like, you know. Even if it's like something with the probing that's slightly off, run out or something, it's fine. It's because I'll like I'll like uh, G58 is what I use for everything, but I'll I'll probe in G57, see if it's like the same or not, and then if it's basically the same, I just like probe again in G58, and I'm like, okay, fine, it repeats, it's close yeah. enough, but it's it's definitely not like within a tenth every single day, so I feel like I kind of have to do it. So you can have Fusion automatically do that with that WCS update. And like I can just explain it to you later because it's kind of hard to explain. But instead of you having to manually like compare the two, you can just have Fusion keep your G58. It never changes, right? But the one that you would like change, like day-to-day for thermal change or whatever, like limit switch change, you could just make that G57. And that's the one that's always updated. So you're never overriding the original you're just updating a different one using the original. You get what I'm saying? So it's like, you don't ever have to change the original. Hey, Dalen. Good morning. Good <laughs> evening. <laughs> a good nap, I'm I'm guessing. Uh, no nap is a good nap. Yeah. Whoa, hold on with that. <laughs> That's honestly valid. <laughs> Naps turn into sleep, and then it's morning. Oh, uh-huh. You gotta have one of them, the caffeine speed naps. You drink coffee, nap for 20 minutes, and you wake up, you're like, all right. Dude, I would try to do that in college, and it would just make it so much worse. Yeah. <laughs> I would just wake up, like, juiced out of my mind. Is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> I think we talked about this, like, when we were at Blade Show, the, like, Uberman sleep schedule or whatever. <laughs> oh, okay. I've never um, attempted it, but it would, it would be nice to not have to sleep as many hours. John, how's your week going? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) When did Dalen ask me when I was going to get a knife done? Was that three or four weeks ago? He's like, so how about (laughs) next week? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I almost feel like I have some sort of weird mental block with actually making these things. It's very strange. Interesting thing to say out loud. I, I can sort of relate. But I don't know what the issue is but now i'm running into just like the the usual one step forward half step back type stuff so it's like okay and like i was telling the the other guys like just the rotary was off in y like out of parallelism with y just just because apparently i was roughing too hard with a three sixteenths end mill you know how it is it's yeah it's just it's tough out here and then like the tool setter today, I didn't even talk about this, but there's like a dip or the tool setter eventually will dish out kind of in the center from you just, you know. Right. Yep. It wears. You're hitting carbide against carbide. It's just kind of a natural, natural thing. 
So I got another one. And I don't know why, but there's they're like $120 a piece. Just the little tip just, section? Just yeah, the arm? Yeah, the, the carb, the actual, they call the, it the, the head. tool set or stylus is what. Okay. Oh, yeah, the stylus. But it's like, it's, yeah, it's just a piece of carbide. And it's like, so I'm indicating this thing in. And if you've ever done it, I've done it a couple of times. And I'm like, this is, I know this is super easy. It's taking me like 15 minutes. Well, cue like two and a half hours later. And I'm like, oh, why gosh. is this thing not centering? And and I'm like, okay, I've disassembled the thing multiple times. There's no chips under the plate. Because the way you set, like, tilt for forward mm-hmm. and back, they consider it, which is, like, the long ways of the, the probe. And obviously, like, your orientation matters. Yeah. But it was, like, the manual says, like, do it this way. So, basically, they it's, like, slacken one if you want to lift the front. It's, like, tighten one. Oh and, my god! And, but they make it like they're like update like screw screw one right and then you adjust for that. you're like okay you're good and then obviously because it screws when you go to actually and it says like tighten two to set the adjustment you tighten it and mm-hmm. of course it moves and it, it changes. like three foul and you're like yeah you can't account for it because it's different every time so <laughs> I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about because Zeke, I, ma- I made Zeke recalibrate our tool probe and he sat there like two hours banging his head against the wall doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so stupid. I, I like, don't I- have a ton of experience with tool uh, setters. So why aren't they all the laser ones? Is it just price or something? Uh, money a laser price. one? Yeah. Uh, a, a laser one would be really amazing just because of like for grinding and stuff or doing this weird stuff where you want to measure the diameter of things that are uh very abrasive to carbide like because like the one you know, in like Grimsdale's current or whatever it's like a laser isn't it yeah yeah it's like a, a bloom laser bloom yeah bloom? I, bloom I think yeah you can get one if you if you want to spend I can't imagine how much buying one would be like well, you know the Renishaws and stuff are already expensive I th- I mean how much more expensive can they be and that's uh, the sure question you never ask in machines. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. famous last words. <laughs> they got. I bet they're like four X, like a normal. Just a what do they call it? What does Renishaw consider theirs? It's physical touch or whatever they call it. There's like a term mm-hmm. for it. It seems like you know, just having to make a laser in this day and age, you just disassemble a Blu-ray player versus having to like grind a tungsten carbide pad and make a mechanical arm. Yeah, I think it's about the software. That's what you're paying for. You're paying for the privilege of using lasers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to be in the right social class. Yeah. My last company had two Bloom lasers installed on their Makino 5-axis machines. Yeah. Nice. Were they reliable or? Extremely. I loved oh, them. Yeah. I made so oh. many custom macros with them. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, being a high society guy, um, how much is the end mill you want to buy, Dalen? Um, <laughs> about four hundred. What kind uh, of what yeah. diameter? It makes three nice millimeter, three millimeter, three millimeter CBN ball end mill. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they, Dude. it's by OSG. Uh, this is the first time in Machine Wise's career that I've had a applications engineer for a tooling company come in and actually not waste my time. That's awesome. (laughs) $400. So he actually, 
he recommended that I try one of their different lines first that isn't CBN. That should be actually cheaper than the Harvey stuff. Oh, interesting. Um, it's supposed to be a really good coding. Once they get in, he's going to come into my shop and we're going to sit down and look at my programs and the tool paths and watch it run. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's cool. Um, and I don't know what the term for it is, but there's a thing that tooling companies will do where they will send you a fair amount of free tooling and it's um, they, they do that and basically guarantee that it'll work or it's free. However, nice. if it does work, then you have to make an order for tools. There's That's a word fine. for it. I forget what it is. Um, Can we all sign up for that? <laughs> seriously. So we're going to do that first. And then I might still try CBN because I'm stubborn. So three mils a weird size. Is that it on is. purpose or is it just um, only a choice? I can't even find a CBN ball and mill larger than three millimeter. And I, it, he said something passing, like you won't find CBN larger than three millimeter ball. Huh? Yeah. So I guess that's just what it, so be. is it a coding or no, is it cubic uh, boron nitride? It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's diamond like, and it's, it's solid. It's, it's not a coding. It, is it monocrystalline? I have no idea. Okay. never mind. <laughs> have you looked into ceramic tooling? Um, I have ceramic tooling would not be good for this. They're really good for roughing, and that's really about it. Um, yeah, they, I, uh... they they chip and wear out really fast. Um, like people who run ceramic end mills, like an Inconel and whatnot. If you went to go look at one of the tools after it finished a roughing pass, you'd think that it was oh, completely yeah. destroyed, but they'll yeah. still run it for hours. Yeah, yeah, they're the zombie tools. Crazy. And uh, yeah, I, I think I've only seen them in like half inch size or something. Yeah. So that's I, I thought about it, but they're not gonna they wouldn't work for what we need. Mm-hmm. So no. so you're trying to solve you just want better surface finish? Yeah. So my issue, which I thought it was, but the 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 apps guy um verified it is is chip dragging. Uh, oh uh, which is causing a gray finish. Mm-hmm. Um, from the tool, the coating wears out, which leaves just the carbide, which then wears out. So the the tool's just wearing out. Yeah. Um, prematurely. Huh. And uh, yeah. Okay. Yep. So when yeah. when's uh the the fun? I should have my Monday. I should have him Monday. Monday. I don't know when he'll be here. Um, hopefully sometime next week. So we can, yeah, dude. like, you know, look real close at the tool paths and real close at it running to make sure that it's doing exactly what it should be doing. Oh, yeah. That's that's very exciting because I've been all but disappointed by everybody else at the moment. It is. Um, yeah, the the accuracy that they claim. So OSG's claim to fame is um, repeatability and consistency. That's pretty good. Um, I think he was claiming three or five micron tolerances on the actual diameter of the ball wow whereas with harvey um we have end mills uh from probably from the same batch that will vary upwards of six tenths yeah i five tenths is a pretty normal variation which is huge yeah for an end mill 
Uh, the coding is supposed to be extremely consistent, so if you get one tool, it's going to perform exactly the same as another tool, whereas I don't get that with Harvey at all. Sometimes I'll get a perfect run of Blades, mm-hmm. and then we'll run the exact same program the next night, and they come out looking like absolute garbage. Yeah. The the only time I've gotten it working is when I over I over conservative my tool paths so that I could technically run a, a like a seventh bevel, and that makes the first six good. I never but get when that. I was when I was running it on the edge and I was like barely getting six, sometimes I'd get perfect, and sometimes the last one was just bad, and it was right. nothing else changed. Did yeah. you say uh, whether you should use coolant with the cubic boron nitride? So CBN is a lot more resilient to thermal shock. Um, what so I'm going to end up doing, mm, I actually, I I got a quote from my local uh, fluids company, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get some MQL oil for hard milling. Oh God! And I'm gonna oh run it in boy. my pod buster. Man's going oh. all the way. I'm I'm oh, okay. Done. Wait, I'm not I'm not going to. Uh, I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm pulling out all the stops. Yeah. So you're sure not flooding. You, you're just mist, mist oiling. It'll be misting. Yep. Okay. Okay. Good. That's so much better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I never think I want to flood oil. Do you have a, uh, what do they call it? A, fo- a mist collector? I have a fog buster. No. Fog buster. I have a fog buster, oh. though. Yep. Yeah. Which is actually what I've been using for my air blast. I'm going to have to mount it somewhere better because the way the 15 degree angle blocks get, like, block the air blast directly oh yeah that's but i've, that's I've never i've never gotten good finishes with air blast on a finish pass anyway so i i never really needed it for finishing so i i did a mistake this week uh that lended lended itself to me is i accidentally i think i measured the uh finish end mill with a chip on the tool setter so when okay. i came in the morning the blades looked like utter garbage <laughs> and at first i thought it was like something was loose and things were moving or uh-huh. end mill was chipped or something but then later i realized that it was probably just mismeasuring the end mill uh, okay um, just the actual tool center itself just had a chip on it probably yeah so the, so my i was looking at my roughing pass and not my finish pass yes and oh my god it was so gross <laughs> <laughs> it was disturbingly terrible. I gotta send you guys some yep. pictures. It is utter, utterly horrifying. Like if, if you saw that in a shop, you'd be like, "What did you did you cut the son of Shapuku? Were you hard milling yeah, right. Shapuku?" <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so I it made me rethink of approaching my my roughing because yep. got you know that that service finish is translating to your finish pass, whether or not it's it's visible or not, it's affecting it. Right. You're, you're taking intermittent chips. Yep. Yep. So anyway, but yeah, I have gotten really close. Um, so I've tried every possible like surface footage and chip load combination I could think of mm-hmm. mostly. Um, and so in order to get the waving gone, I had to run the semi finishing and the finishing a lot slower, like a lot slower. Right. Um, 10 inch a minute on op one and seven inch a minute on op two. That kind of slow. So I brought all of Okay. I mean, I was running um, like on serif blades and and so on serif blades and previously on opus blades when I was getting a more repeatable finish, but with the actual waving in it, Mm -hmm. uh, I was running 
30 to 35 inches a minute. Okay, but you're you're doing the fine step over parallel passes. Yeah, 15,000 step so, over parallel passes. Yeah, so it's a little bit different, but yeah, exactly. understandable. Yeah. Yep. And that was actually giving moderately good finish. It was just the waving that was the problem. Yeah. So now I've traded the waving for the gray finish. Um, so what I, I, I dropped my RPM down a lot to compensate for it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to have like a, you know, a 70 millionths to one tenth chip load. Yeah. But, um, yesterday I decided to say screw it because I was getting a great finish still. And I jacked the semi finish and the finish RPMs up to 12 grand, just all of it, all of yeah. the RPM, wow. which actually made a significant difference. Wait, yeah, good or bad? A good, good difference. Really? Interesting. Surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if the Edmills are going to last, though. Uh, they are right now. I okay. they, the, the blade bevels are... Basically, all of them are acceptable right now. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm still going to move forward with OSG, though, because I'm expecting I'll get much better results from them, and I would still like to try CBN. I'm probably going to buy a CBN ball anyway. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I like trying stuff. I well, I don't. That might be a little rich for me, but <laughs> I like lighting four hundred dollars on fire. Yeah, understandable. Yep. <laughs> uh, I feel bad, like spending eighty dollars on a weird lollipop Harvey tool. Oh, I got right? over that. <laughs> yep. I, I if it works, it's worth the money. It's just it absolutely it, is. Yeah, I mean, I would have to get perfect finishes for. It would either have to give me similar finishes, but last ten times as long, or give me twice as good of a finish and last like three times as long. Yeah. Uh, at that price. Yeah, yeah no, you could do the math and figure out how much, how many, end mills it costs for one of those. Yeah, I mean, one of my ball mills right now is thirty nine dollars. Supposedly, the the new OSG tools I'm going to be trying are going to be cheaper than thirty nine dollars and better. So. I, I might look at those. We'll I'm, I'm just terrified to swap tooling now that I've got it working. <laughs> I've never got that's it working, true. so yeah, yeah, that's fair. Something to be yeah. said for it we're already working, you know, right? Yeah. Um, and if it works, I'm going to swap all of my hard milling stuff probably over to OSG. I I hope Godspeed for all of us. <laughs> I I truly hope. Yep. Well, you saw I I did this like a year ago, but I've slowly switched everything to Kodiak and helical and Harvey. Yeah. Uh, just because I wanted to have all the imported tool libraries in fusion. Ah, uh, yeah. So I don't have to model any tools ever again. Right. <clears throat> if oh. I can be happy with those brands. Yep. I used uh, but to, I did like OSG. I used them a lot for a while. Okay. I know I've used a couple of their tools in the past, but I'm not very familiar with them. Um, I used to be a really, really big Harvey and helical shill. But uh, the more tools I try from them recently, the more disappointed I become. Oh. Because <laughs> I've tried a yeah, bunch I, of helical ball mills recently for my titanium. Mm. And uh, the finishing one, the tip of it exploded after like three runs. Oh. <laughs> Whereas my Imco ones last like 50, 60, 70 runs. Mm-hmm. Like, like, yeah, like tens nice. and tens and tens of hours. I See, that's what, that's what I felt when I... I think it was an Imco. I bought an Imco uh, hard milling and mill to try mm-hmm. it, just to try, it. and it 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 exploded on my blades with the where the helical was working. Um, yeah. So yeah, for hard milling, I don't 
know if Imco makes a true hard milling end mill, if I'm being honest. I thought, th- I mean, I thought they said they did. Uh, whatever I bought, I believe it was from Imco, or maybe, yeah, I think it was from Imco. It was orange, right? I- the packaging? Yeah, and I remember you were telling me about it, and I went, oh, I'll try it, and then it literally just exploded, and I, I, yeah, I bought two, and I, too. I never used a second one, because I was like, this is Yeah, mine were exploding as well. I tried at one point. Yeah. Um, I'm looking through their end mills right now to see if they actually do have a true hard milling end mill, but... You feel like you guys are always, like, have you been trying to use whatever the manufacturer said for speed and feeds? I, I usually give that a shot, but then I... I tinker until i get something that actually works sure um because the biggest thing like all the other geometry like titanium geometry yeah usually you know manufacturing feeds feeds tends to work out especially surface footage is a good place to start but the bevel geometry is never an ideal case for their feeds and speeds it just doesn't add up uh i've never been impressed with a single manufacturer's feeds and speeds charts versus what i end up running with yeah yeah, for bevels, it's weird. I'm I'm doing a a sixteenth inch hard mill from Harvey now. That's like seven flutes. It's crazy. It's got like a quarter inch shank, even though it's only a sixteenth inch tool. You said it's it, a seven flute sixteenth inch. Yeah, it's crazy. It's oh my got, god! It's got seven tiny flutes, and it's pretty good. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, and wow. sorry. Go ahead. I that's that's just incredible. I don't have the RPM to run that at anywhere near what it should be. <laughs> well, I think it's only I don't want to open fusion. I, I think it's only like 50 surface feet per minute or something is what they recommend uh, for hard milling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think the RPM is only like 3800. Really? Uh, yeah, for 50 surface footage. That sounds right. I'd well, that sounds check. right. But like you're taking such tiny cuts with that thing. I I, did, I mean I don't know I I don't know I I don't use things nearly as extensively as you so maybe if I uh, keep running it all I'll be disappointed. Um, what happened well, I, uh, yesterday is I was running a bunch of blades. I started kind of telling you about this. Uh, mm-hmm. I just I I said last week that I got new laser cut blades. I was just trying to like do all the finishing stuff on the blades I had made just to see if I got more out of them. And so some of them uh, are random hardnesses because I've tried like different hardnesses. And so I felt like trying to do the finish hard milling on the pinholes with this special tool. I felt like, oh, maybe I wore it out. And, uh, And so I switched to a different tool that's less good because I thought I was out of that tool. And, uh, it was just some other like random uh, or actually I think it was like a different helical tool. That's also for hard milling. I was going to try mm-hmm. and I tried using that for a while and eventually that just broke. It, it didn't even wear out. Um, and so it was a lot of frustration and what I'm doing is segueing into, I like have been super disorganized with my tools where I had everything nice and color coded and numbered and all this but then like I'd run out of tools and I just like throw one of the boxes on my desk and then kind of forget about it. And then like mm-hmm. leave boxes in where I keep my tools and forget about it. Um, and so like, I had no idea like what I needed to order more of. And I started using like a mismatch of random things and co- like screwing up my whole system. 
Uh, and so uh, I made like Kanban cards today where I like typed out all the different things onto cards and then put them into little shallower bins with all the tools and, and threw away all the empty stupid end mill boxes and, mm. uh, and like actually ordered the correct things today. Nice. And uh, so that's a minor, a minor win <laughs> for me. I, that's a definitely a win. Hundred percent. I my organization is nowhere near that. <laughs> I just have a drawer. It's definitely <laughs> nice to have your end mills organized for sure. Speaking about organization, how do you oh, guys? Exactly. How do you guys blade like complete blades or knives you're gonna sell? How do you organize them? So like right now, let's say I put some configuration together, right? And mm-hmm. I put them together in a box. Are you? Do you take raw parts and put them in like, let's say just a, I don't know, a bin and you're like, okay, this is going to be one I'm going to sell. These parts are going to go together and I'm going to sell this. Is that something you guys do? Like, how do you actually put parts together to eventually sell the actual blade? Like clearly you haven't been watching my videos, John. (laughs) Clearly not. (laughs) I was like in my last real episode, I think it was the last one. I made 3D printed trays where I have trays that are just like 16 little slots for blades and or handles, whatever. Each one's different for each part. But then I also have trays where it's like you put the number of parts. So it has like two slots for blades, four slots for handles, and then some like little bowl things that have uh, for like screws. I put 16 screws in this little like bowl area. Uh, so that's how I do it. Yeah. Because I see, like, like a, Grant, you had something posted that was like they're they're done knives, yeah, with labels and stuff. How do you? What happens is like I make a bunch of parts and I'm like, okay, this all these parts work together to make one knife, but mm-hmm. I'm scared to put them into one bin because they're gonna scratch each other. Right. So do they go into the bin when they're assembled? Like, how do you determine colors? Yeah. Type thing. So, um, I mean, my process is fairly specific okay i I took a different route let's say that i i'm orienting it towards production and not towards uh one piece flow if that makes sense so the the non-scratchable items uh screws bushings washers they just go into a bin so i have a bin full of a thousand washers a bin full of 500 bushings they're in bulk and ready to go then yeah, and then I have a t- we have a just an assembly table with all of the hardware in a bin, and then I have another bin with blades, um, and I I WD forty all the blades when they come out of the tumbler, and so they're kind of just sitting in oil for as long as they need to be there, mm-hmm. and then handles come out of the tumbler and handles direct the flow of the assembly, so handles come out of the tumbler, we do a little bit deburring. And then go right into a ultrasonic cleaner, cleaning, 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 acid etch, cleaning, cleaning, you know, uh, whatever, anodizing. Yep. And I, I do, you know, two pairs of handles at a time, or sorry, one pair of hand, a, a nice worth of handles at a time. So if I want green, I do my green handles. I take that handle set and I go wash it off, make sure they're dry. And then I got these uh, silverware organizers. So it's. Um, oh, it's like, it, it's five compartments. So four, four on one thing and the one at the top. And I come in and I put two, the two handles in one of those compartments. Uh, 
And so what we do for assembly is, you know, you have your blades and all of your hardware. You take those two handles, put it on a cloth table or a clothed table, um, assemble everything together, take that knife, do all your tuning or testing uh, for swing and everything that you might do. And as soon as that knife has passed assembly and basic QC, we put them in our little foam, uh, you know, uh, whatever you call it, inserts that go into the boxes. We put them in that. And then that ends up on our shipping table. And then we just stack knives ready for shipping. Gotcha. Um, so it's, I don't have a bin full of parts for a single knife that work together because all of my parts work together. Um, and when they're assembled, they are in a knife and then they're ready to ship basically. Gotcha. That's basically what I've been trying to get to and why I like, you know, kind of wanted to put more pairs of scissors together before I sold the first one is, is I want to make sure all of my parts are interchangeable with each Mm other. And, uh, I think it was before the podcast. I said this where, uh, the problem is that, uh, I didn't give myself enough material on the last round of stuff I laser cut. So after tumbling, I have to like be very careful to try to sharpen, to do the last step to sharpen the scissors. I'm removing material uh, and I have to get rid of the radius that's caused by the tumbling. But if I get rid of too much material, uh, a kind of gap forms when the scissors are closed, which obviously looks bad. Like at the tip of the blade, the, they don't come together. And so these new laser blade blanks don't have that problem, but it was, I said, I'd put together some scissors and test stuff out. And that was a little disappointing this week that I basically was running into that problem a lot where I think that I just, you know, couldn't sharpen them as much as I needed to without potentially making really ugly looking blades. And so it's, it's kind of up to chance and, Hopefully in the next round of blades, it won't have this. And then with the assembly stuff, I think uh, I think that's the last thing I need to make is I haven't designed something for finished scissors. And so now that I'm actually kind of making multiple at a time, uh, I'm just kind of putting them in random plastic boxes I've bought as like possible packaging. And they're like yeah. just all over the place. Yeah, I feel like because I have like probably enough knife parts lying around for like 20 knives and i'm just oh my like god yeah John. i'm like how do i how do i put these together <laughs> i don't know what i'm doing with my life do, do no. we all need to like field trip to your shop and just help you assemble I think we do. 20 knives yeah, like if i if some some advisors could show up and help me out that would be real great but david that thing you post looks pretty uh like actually pretty and then oh yeah like that's the, very cool yeah i like the the um the silverware thing you're you're using there grant you were talking about yeah it's handy um and the biggest i mean like you talked about parts scratching each other especially anodized titanium um is like my my fear (laughs) it's it's yeah it's awful and so the the silverware containers are like rubber bottoms and i only put the like finished handles together in one of those bins there's not a lot like they're not going to roll around on each other because there's not overlap or anything yeah um and then that also helps us stay organized of like I can fill those bins with a bunch of different color pairs. And I know that each one of those is eventually a knife. So when I'm doing my head count of like, hey, we're going to have 30 knives this week, I can count those handles and know that that's part of our kind of inventory. 
Uh, right. And it, and it helps us all stay square because for assembly, we only assemble one knife at a time. There was a, a moment that Rage was trying to do more than one at a time, and it kind of messed with everybody. Yeah. Um, so it's it's now a hard and fast rule that you pick up a pair of handles and you don't put them down until that is a finished knife. Yeah, um, I definitely run into that where I'm like, okay, I have enough parts for three knives and I'll put them near each other. And then I'm just like, wait a minute. This pivot was for this one or whatever. <laughs> then, yeah. And then I obviously run into the the book spot problem where it's like this person has this very specific color on the front handle and the back handle is different, blah, blah, blah. Right. So you end up like doing a lot of walking, trying to assemble the thing as you go. Well, so, I mean, I don't know much about your anodizing process. I think the anodizing process for me, especially with your books parts, is the one that I'm the least secure in because it's it is like walking around or like, hey, I made this specific color or or it's like, hey, one of these handles had a little bit of too much taper. So we're, it's a not good handle. But now I have one colored handle. And when you reacid etch it, it's going to come out a different color. So you can't just like throw a different handle with it. Yeah. And I feel the same way about the pair of handles because they get machined in one go and they follow each other through the ops. It's like this this bottom handle's bad, but the top handle's fine. So because they were machined at the same time, they're going to fit better as far as like stop pins and stuff stuff go. Do yeah. You keep just like the front handles around or you just scrap them because it's like, I don't know. See, I, I just have, like, have a special a drawer for handles. this. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't want to keep, you know, like if I'm not like if I'm not going to sell it, I don't want to keep it around because what's happening is I'm like, is this a good handle? I'm not sure. Kind of thing. That's yeah, what I'm saying. I, definitely... I have a very clearly like separated drawer that's like completely away from everything else where it's like in an emergency. If I like feel like for some reason I need this blade or whatever, uh, I can like go to the drawer, but it's basically the scrap drawer, you know, and some of it I probably should, should get rid of. Yeah. Uh, but <clears throat> yeah, I, I keep, I keep things, especially if they can be reworked. I try to rework them right when I see the problem. Otherwise, I scrap even a good handle if it doesn't have a pair. And like like I said, it's already acid etched and you're never going to match that fade that you did on it or whatever. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll scrap a good handle just because I want it out of the way. Yeah, because it, it, it takes up brain space when you're trying to like try to get it to work. It, you'll spend half a day trying to fix that thing where you should have just been moving on, especially if you like basically got your process down. So making another handle is, you know, hopefully only a couple hours work not yeah, well, like tumbling yeah. Ha yeah handles are for me you know handles are coming off the mill it's unfortunate like we're going to be a handle behind but we can there's enough capacity that i can make an extra handle tomorrow and it all even out whatever uh you know it's the cost of the labor or the cost of the machine time and the and the material but at least it's free brain space which is kind of valuable nowadays yeah it's just crazy to think that like it should be so simple but then you end up trying to do it all and you're like, man, yeah, there's a lot of parts. There's there's a lot of stuff going on. It feels so, like. So what are your unique parts and what are your standard parts, John? So I guess when you mean unique, you mean basically like it's specific to like a book spot or do you mean like. So like that what parts would you just fill a bin to the top? And when you're assembling a handle, you just grab from that bin and what parts require separation 
So basically you can do that. Uh, I'll get to this part, but basically you can do that with like the pivots, the backspacers, the, the handles before they get engraved, if they have specific patterns. And mm -hmm. then basically what you can do is you can bring an entire knife up to what I would call like a base model of stuff. So like, let's say all the backspacers are going to get tumbled because that's just easier to keep track of. And then if they need a blasted finish, I'll blast them after because it doesn't, it's not like degrading the, the geometric feature of the thing. So mm -hmm. what I'll do is like inventory, I don't know, like 20 of these backspacers because they're going to be the same and they're all going to be tumbled. So right. I feel like you can go to this baseline, this base model, these, all these parts. And then from there you can customize them. And I guess what's happening is like when it goes to the customized thing and it's the book spots is what's kind of slowing me down is like, like I said, this handle needs this thing engraved and it's this color, but then the bottom handle needs this thing. And then, mm -hmm. oh, the backspacers are a different color and it's blasted. And in the future, like I'm de definitely killing options off the book. Yeah. Spot. Like a yeah, lot yeah. of less and then add over time. And I totally understand. Like that's totally what's going to happen, but because they're already sold, like they have to be this way. Yeah. But I don't know. I just feel like I almost get this feeling like, where did all these parts from? I should just restart. I should get rid of these and restart <laughs> kind of thing. I, but I, I mean, just have, have tolerances and check them and then, you know, have some bids. I have like a million red shallow bins that I also use I, for everything. John, I think I don't have enough practice is what it is, honestly. But that that could serve. I there's a flow. You figure out your flow. Yeah. What yeah. whenever you get to it, you kind of it just kind of happens. Yeah. Um I I certainly would not say that this is the right path, but have you thought about just keeping those parts for like your open sales after the book spots are done? And then the next parts that come off the mill are for that book spot. And you can control that flow. That That's way. an idea. Yeah, yeah. So what I was thinking was like, so I have some of these book spots that are, are obviously due. So what I would do is like, because the new, all the new palette stuff is for two knives, essentially when they're, the parts are done. So like one of these, this group of parts would be for a book spot. And the other group is just for whatever available inventory. Cause then, mm -hmm. then I can at least, make money and still fulfill the book spots right it, i def i would definitely recommend doing it that way because the i when i started i did very i did everything wrong i i tried to just say whoever wants a knife text me and we'll we'll talk about it yeah and it just the amount of like i said the the mental space that that, that takes up because yeah. now you're focusing on a one customer that may even change his mind in 30 minutes and you're committing to a thing or like you can't do anything else until you have this one set of handles finished. Yeah. Um, where whenever I, the Medusas is where I totally shifted paradigm is because I said, all right, zero customization, you get silver and, and silver. And if you want something else, you get silver. And at least it let me get my flow done. And it, yeah. it, it allowed me to practice all of the basic stuff. And then only, and this was literally a year after I was doing only silver knives, I felt confident enough to bring back any level of customization. And it's customization that I'm controlling, the not, not that the customer is controlling. I feel um, like that's, yeah, I feel like that's such a good idea too, because it's like, 
I'm getting, I'm not able to grow because you are in fact chasing your tail around trying to, yeah. <laughs> you're literally walking around trying to do all these colors and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. So that might happen after, after these books got spots get filled where I'm just like, here's a run of 50. They're all this and this engraving. And then, you know what? People are usually happy anyway. It's from, from what I've seen. I I have the like that's one of the reasons I love doing the specials, the Medusa specials so much is because I get to have fun as an artist. I get to make crazy weird things. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. But then there's always that like two knives that people really fight for. Yeah. And then I get like six DMs being like, dang, that one sold so fast. I really wanted that one. Yeah. And like, sorry, sorry you missed out on that one, but like that makes me excited that I made something that was not only more desirable than my normal product, but like that that multiple people wanted that specific thing. And it keys me into what people are interested in as a whole, more so than then telling me. Because when some someone says, Hey, you should do more green knives or blue knives or whatever, that's one person saying that. that right? That's you, my my plan is to be kind of maker's choice where I'm going to do yeah. random colors and patterns. You know, I'm starting to rethink it because I've had anodizing issues. So hopefully this anodizing goes good and I don't have to just do one pattern in all black to make up for annoying problems. But, uh, it's, my it's plan not is a yeah, bad to, place to start. I, Make, I, making everyone happy is not, is not a good spot well, to be in. I think I'm just trying to make myself now. I just wanted to do, uh, like, <clears throat> like do enough anodizing for like four scissors in one color and then another color, just totally whatever colors I personally felt like I'm not taking input from anyone. And then like all sorts of different pan, uh, textures on the handles again, just because of that's, that's to me is the most fun part of machining is, and this whole thing is I just like coming up with different handle patterns. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I want to do that, and it means that the first several I'll sell, it'll just be like, hey, this is what's for sale. If you like green, then uh, try to get it. If you don't, then that's okay, because I'll probably do blue next month. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it'll definitely be a while before I give people the choice of customization, because it invites lots of issues, potentially. Yeah, and and I don't get me wrong for a different shop, like especially custom makers, like one guys that spend a month to make one knife, that makes total sense for that yeah. business model. But for for the numbers that at least you know I'm hitting, and I know David wants to hit, and Dalen's hitting, and John, hopefully you're hitting next week whenever everything's done. <laughs> right, hopefully. <laughs> um, and there's just no way to balance it, and like. I, I've I've been toying around the, with the idea, uh, which I I did uh, last week or two weeks ago with that auction, that single auction knife. Yeah, is like once a month or maybe once every two months. I'm gonna do like one very special custom knife, um, and it may still be a maker's choice, or I may truly let someone pick it for it. But I'll do one, and everything, every other knife, all you know, forty other knives are all gonna be maker's choice or standardized colors or whatever but i'll give myself that one that i can spend extra time and in, invest in but i give myself the freedom to just do the other ones how i want it done and not kind of not feel the pressure from 40 custom knives right? i mean that's that's the way to do it because you're doing this for you and it's just 
a lucky coincidence people want to buy them. And if you <laughs> yeah. happen to make a knife that's so ugly no one wants to buy it, uh, then that's okay. Me. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could you could keep that one then. But yeah, uh okay. the rest of them will probably be fine. Dalen, do you have any uh part Dalen, any part, input? <laughs> part oh, handling I mean, input. Let's see. I have a bin wall. McMaster sells these fun little uh like strips of metal that you can hang on walls that will then let bins anchor onto them. Yeah. So I have like 40 or 60 uh bins that just hang on the wall. And uh we put we have like a weird kind of one piece flow. We have like a one batch flow um hmm. where we get three finished knives worth of parts every day mm. of like sort of for opuses at least. And actually I have a different I have different parts handling for different products, which is kind of odd. Mm. Um, so like the opuses and the serifs and the titanium knives in general, uh, once they come off the machine, they get tumbled and then the blades and the handles will go together into one bin. And I've never had issues with them scratching each other. Mm. Uh, the blade goes on one side and the handles go on the other side of it and they don't really get moved around much, so they don't really get shaken, so they don't get scratched. Um, and then from there, we do daily batch anodizing, I guess, if we're going to do any anno colors. Gotcha. Um, so usually I shoot for 10 raw and then 10 of one color, 10 of a different color in every drop every two weeks. So 15 a week, which equates out to three a day. So we do like, you know, three of one color a day until that color is at 10 and then three of a different color a day until that color is at 10. Makes and, sense. Uh, yeah, we would we assemble one knife at a time. So once those parts are in those bins, um, those parts are that knife and they don't get mixed around. Mm. Um, yeah. Other than that, like Prismas, the aluminum stuff, those are a lot more, I guess, batch style manufacturing. We just crank out a boatload of handles every so often whenever we need them. And then I'll drop off two to three weeks worth of handles to anodize at a time. And then they just sit in a big old U-line bin until they are assembled, basically. I think, uh, like, your knife probably has probably, like, double the parts uh, a channel balisong has, at least, right? Oh, yeah, the Opus is... I mean, if you count each individual weight, the Opus has one, two, three, four, five... Oh, yeah, the weights. Uh, not not including, six, like, screws. Seven. It has seven machined parts. And then it has little nylon screws that act as a damper and then the standard hardware so because the john your knife has two handles a blade it has a pivot that's not just like an off-the-shelf pivot it has the spacer it has a pocket clip that's different than the spacer yep and uh the lock bar insert the <laughs> the pivot screw <laughs> uh bearing the uh yeah the two bearings I remove finally remove the bronze washer spacer thing. Don't need that anymore. But and then there's nice. the handle screws, which I used to hand sand down to length. Which somebody was like, "These screws are different lengths," and I was like, "Okay, it's time to solve that problem." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> started facing them on the mill because making them on a big lathe is not not money well spent. Yep. Yeah. There's a I don't know. So so that's where like something that's uh a more clear sorting thing, even like egg cartons, you know, you could put 
Uh, some of the parts, just one pivot screw in an egg carton thing. Not not like, you know what I'm talking, you could buy from Uline. I have like way too much mm-hmm. of it that I never use. Uh, you know, something like, like that might be good to have too. Yeah. This is like the problems I have are like once you actually get the sort of flow going, it's then it's solving tolerance stuff for me because it's like the pivots, the problem with the top shoulders, like they get C axis milled on the on the lathe. So it's like the lathe's accurate, but then it's like the pocket is milled on the mill, you know, and then you're trying to match this weirdly shaped pivot shoulder to this pocket. And they gotta be really close because if they if they're not, it'll have it'll rotate a little, and you can see the gap on yeah. one side of the shoulder, and it's like it doesn't look good. And I don't know what that that actual distance is because I can't measure it, but with hand tools, but it's got to be like five tenths maybe for it not to have that weird like rotational. You can't, like, can you put like shims in it to see. Yeah, it's because like if you look at the the actual pivot rests against the uh, handle. Uh, pocket that's made so I don't know where you would shim it this is like the edges of the pivot I don't know a picture of it but uh. I I just assume there's like a an angle that forms that's like a gap yeah and it's that like gap. if it's correct this should be like two parallel lines going all the way around yeah I put a picture in in the yep. general if there's any gap between the pivot that comes off the lathe and then the handle, then it's like you have that. I don't know. It's just like, it feels like everything has to be like wicked tight besides the backspacers. I'm finally like plus or minus five. It'll be fine. Yeah. It's a <laughs> Which aesthetic is true, part. Cause it's literally just a spacer. And I'm like, yeah. I have to get it through my head. It's just a spacer. Like could, can, uh, could you increase the gap on purpose and, if it's just held in friction with friction well enough, you know, it would still look good. It would, but a slight gap means that, you know, it, like it, the bigger the gap is, the harder to see if things aren't aligned correctly, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, the problem is like, if there's any slop, when you tighten the pivot, it forces it into the slop. Which is why I'm like, yeah, it's true. I should have made the feature not seeable and just made the top around and then put this. Oh feature my god, that's genius! But it's kind yeah, of part of the look, so it's like, yeah. But if you had hidden it, no one would notice, type thing. So maybe I, next. I I was about to suggest making a a collar on the lathe that fits into your handles, and then you have a lathe part on a lathe part into the collar. It's probably like OD is around, which is a lot easier to match up. But I I don't think that would work with your handle shape. Yeah. So never mind. So again, this is like overly complicated design as usual. So maybe third time's <laughs> a charm. I'll get it right. <laughs> but yeah, for now it's just like the tolerance stuff is. I don't know. But yeah. Anyways. Y'all want to wrap it up? I think we should. Yes. Thanks for listening. Y- yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for letting me borrow your ears.